With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My guest on today's show is Mohammed Ashouri. Mohammed is a doctor, and he's here today to share with us some ideas of how to save money on your medical costs. Wouldn't it be great to know about the stuff that you actually need and also to know about the stuff that's a waste of money so you could get the same or better results for cheaper? Mohammed, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> I'm glad that you reached out to me with this topic. Uh, and there's going to be two major aspects of our conversation. First, a little bit about your personal financial story, especially as it relates to early retirement. And then we're going to dig heavily into the topic of medicine, of how to save money on medicine. Uh, I can just hear the screams of people coming <laughs> right now. Don't save money on your health. You have to spend money on on, uh, on medicine. So this is going to be a fun and, and provocative topic. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal story. Uh, especially as it relates to retirement and personal finance. Sure, sure. So um, I I finished residency in 2009, and immediately I started you know spending as much money as I could just to catch up for those uh, <laughs> initial few years. And I did pretty well. I think I got into debt. I bought a condo, credit card. I got I was I think fifty thousand dollars in credit card debt, maybe forty five thousand. And Ooh, you did it I, right! Congratulations! I did it. Yeah, I did it professionally. <laughs> And I had student loans, and pretty much uh, by 2012, I was just—I I just didn't know how to get out of it. I was so uh, inundated with debt, and I was making a ton of money at the time. I was pulling in, uh, I think, like $300,000 a year, and I still couldn't—I I just didn't see any way I could ever retire unless I was going to work into my 70s. So that's when I—that's when I just turned it around. I found a website, YNAB, which I know you're pretty fond of. Mm-hmm. And I just got so much great information there. I just started keeping track of everything, brought my expenses down to $7,500 a month, which was awesome, which was huge for me. Um, and just kind of slowly chipped away at it. Um, and uh, I think I've made pretty good progress now. So tell, tell me that number again. You brought your expenses down to what number? $7,500 a month. Okay. And that was down from, do you have any guess what you were spending before? Yeah, I was probably about ten to 11000 a month with everything that I was spending on. I was spending money on cars, clothes, traveling, food, that sort of stuff. And how, uh, uh, how old are you now? I'm 37. And you just talk, you consider yourself to be financially independent, right? Yep. Okay, so the timeline for you from graduating, well, I guess we got to, figure when you graduated from school versus residency. How many years of an active career did you pursue as a physician until you now consider yourself financially independent? So um, 2007 is when I started kind of uh, moonlighting, you know, uh, picking up a little extra shift on top of my residency. Uh, So from 2007 until now, but I would say from 2007 until 2012, I was busier accumulating debt than working towards financial independence. So from 2012 until now is when I think I really 
just got serious about it. So about four years, and it's primarily based upon reducing your expenses. Did you, uh, did you, what did you do? What were the major changes in your lifestyle that you did that allowed you to reduce your expenses? Um, I think I just second guessed everything. I just said, um, you know, this is, this is how much I'm paying on rent. I don't need to pay this. What's the lowest I can pay? Um, I'm paying this much for my cell phone. I don't need to pay this. What's the lowest I can pay? Just uh, everything, my uh, insurance, the fact that I owned a car. I don't own a car now. Um, traveling, all the, all the different things, food expenses, all the things that I thought I really, really needed. Um, I just cut them out completely. So in 2012, I think it was August 2012, I actually moved out of a penthouse in downtown San Diego and rented a 212-square-foot uh, apartment in a really gorgeous part of town, but um, just completely downshifted. Uh, got rid of everything and said, all right, I'm not going to buy anything. I'm not going to add anything back into my life. I'm going to bike everywhere, which isn't easy to do in San Diego. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I said, all right, let me just build it up and I'll really get what I, I'll buy or purchase whatever I desperately, desperately need. So well, that's hardcore, man. And so uh, are you still living that kind of super minimalist uh, lifestyle or have you adjusted to a more comfortable standard of living? Um, I moved, so I moved from San Diego to Portland in about, <clears throat> about a year ago. Uh, and when I moved over here, I, I still got a really tiny studio, 140 square feet. Um, I got rid of my car completely. So I biked everywhere, but I had a, uh, I feel like I have a really good lifestyle. There's, um, I mean, there's parks around here. I play, uh, soccer. I, I go rock climbing. I have a g- nice gym membership. I, the food's amazing here. I go out, drink with my friends, beer. Um, so the lifestyle is really good. I don't know if, how much of a minimalist lifestyle it is, but yeah, I don't have a car. Um, and even though sometimes I will get a rental if I need to, um, I have a, I bought a condo here cash for about $140,000 and Great. it's small. It's, uh, 350 square feet, but it's close to everything. I, it's close to a grocery store. It's close to public transportation. It's, uh, within walking distance to my job. So in the, in the last four years from 2012 to 2016, do you have any guess on how much you were making during that time? So 2012, I probably made about, um, 230,000 and then, 300,000, 350. I got up to 430,000 in 2014 and then back down to 300 and some. So I'd say on average about a solid three something, 330. That's great. And, and you were probably, were you picking up, you mentioned you were picking up extra shifts and working extra in order to get your income up? Exactly. And that was the time when I had the student loans and the credit cards and uh, probably some other little expenses. I, I've, oh, I had a car for a while, so I paid that off. So uh, that's the time when I really got serious about picking up extra shifts. I said, okay, I have good use for this money. I'm probably not going to burn out because I'm not just picking up extra shifts to be a workaholic. And mm-hmm. um, I used all that extra money to uh, pay down the debt. It's exciting. It definitely shows the power of a strong income. Uh, and you certainly invested many years into building that income. But it demonstrates how with focus, uh, you know, living on 7500 a month is 90000 a year. You can live a, a, a really great lifestyle in 90000 a year if you minimize a couple of those major structural costs. Um, 
have reasonable housing, reasonable transportation. It leaves you with luxury in every other budget category. Uh, but yet still, when you have a, a substantial income, you can make a, a major difference. So at this point in time, two, two more questions, then we're going to move to saving money on medicine. Um, first, uh, do you intend – what are your thoughts? Do you intend – are you going to quit working? Are you going to uh, adjust anything or are you satisfied and, and planning to continue the career that you've built? Yeah, I think I'm uh, in a, in a positive way. I'm struggling with that a little bit. Um, I would I would love to uh, do something for free, just practice medicine for free, and I think that's that's going to be in the long term plan. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's kind of a shock for me right now, not n- recognizing that I don't have to work anymore. It's really exciting. It's awesome. I'm super excited about it. But um, at the same time, I think I'll just keep going for this next year and. Um, just just keep saving the money for now and definitely want to do something more productive than you're probably going to hear me be a little bit critical of the medical industry. So, uh, yeah, I, that's, I'm, I'm happy. To, I'm glad that we're, we're discussing that. It is it, and it's so new for you. Like, like you said, you just declared it on March 1st. And as we record this interview, it's March 22, 2016. So this is just a few weeks, a uh, few weeks old. It's going to take a little time to settle in. But I'm I'm excited about the possibilities because, man, there are some I don't know what you're into personally, but there are some some awesome aid organizations. There's some often awesome uh, just organizations that could really use somebody with medical expertise, especially if they don't have to pony up a big salary. And that exactly there, I mean, <laughs> I see some of these doctors who go in and, and to uh, work with uh, people in remote areas of the world. And for me, if I, if I were skilled in medical, I mean, that's, that's the direction my bent would be. Uh, but very cool. Uh, last question. If you were speaking to, uh, excuse me, last question on this topic before we transition to medicine. If you were giving uh, advice to yourself, <laughs> a young medical student, uh, maybe just graduating from school, heading into residency, uh, what would be your words of experience from having lived uh, a couple of different lifestyles over the last decade? Uh, I would say uh, ignore the ignore the prestige of the profession, ignore how other people treat you, and definitely ignore the income. Uh, don't don't just keep working and keep spending because you can easily outspend any kind of income that you can make. Uh, but recognize that that income has so much more potential for something, something really good. Like whether you give the money away to, to a good organization, whether you, whether you can become financially independent and then give your expertise, give your uh, knowledge away for free. Uh, and just being able, knowing that you can do that in less than, Oh, easily in less than 10 years, I I would have, gosh, I would, I would love somebody to just like drill that into my skull back then, you know? (laughs) Sometimes we have to have a little life experience to be ready for for advice (laughs) after living like a broke college student for, for a year is usually to young, uh, young residents. The BMW starts to look pretty attractive. (laughs) Sometimes it takes a few years of driving a BMW, sitting in traffic to say, you know, this is fine, but (laughs) it would be just as fine in a different, uh, in a different form of conveyance. So let's talk about medicine. And specifically, you sent me a note to recommend to uh, uh, suggest this show topic saying how we could save on healthcare. And I'll tell you, I'm totally into saving on healthcare, but I want to start with just the big uh, rebuttal. Anytime I ever say anything about saving on uh, on health expenses, people immediately accuse me uh, of 
negligence, negligence toward myself sure. and negligence toward my family. So uh, are, are we going to play, you know, roll the dice on the roulette wheel here and we're, we're gambling with our health just to save a buck? Or is there a reasonable path through looking at various medical expenses uh, with a rational mind? Absolutely. I think, you know, medicine in America is practiced uh, completely in a shotgun approach. You're, we're throwing a ton of technology. We're throwing a ton of uh, medications, treatments, labs, and everything at patients. Um, so there's so much room for patient autonomy, kind of stepping in and saying, well, yeah, that's great, Dr. Ashori, but uh, I'm, I'm cool. I don't want that. Uh, and it's so sobering. It's it's incredible when I witnessed that. I, I work at. I think I probably haven't said this, but um, I uh, trained in family medicine, so I did that. Um, and right after family, right after I finished residency, I started practicing urgent care because even though I did a lot of family medicine, had my own patients that I was following through in residency, it was just not appealing because there was a lot of hand holding. These patients became dependent on me. They um, they just kind of. I feel like they started neglecting their life a little bit because they would wait until they got the appointment with me. And then they're like, okay, Dr. Short, what are you going to do for me? I've gained another 15 pounds. And, um, you know, that's, that's not good. Um, so I started practicing, um, only urgent care and I see my patients coming in and, uh, every once in a while, someone will just completely stop me and say, yeah, that's great that you want to get a chest x-ray, but what would happen if I didn't get the chest x-ray? And you immediately have to change your mentality as a physician because, you know, we're trained to protect the patient. We're trained to make sure that we don't miss something big. And uh, we're trained to, you know, self-preservation. I don't want to get sued. Um, I don't want to miss something huge that's going to come and bite me in the butt later. So when you get a patient like that, it's, it's, it's very refreshing. So that's the patient where you want to focus on. And it's rare. It's very, very rare. I'd say probably the past few shifts that I've had, uh, I can recall two patients. Two and patients about, that actually pushed back. Oh, yeah. And I've, I see about mm, 30 to 30 some in, in a 10-hour shift. Wow. What percentage of the patients that you see actually need to be there with you? <laughs> uh Oh my goodness, three to five percent. <laughs> wow. Now you're not just just for the sake of clarity. Uh, I would have you on if you were a. Uh, uh, I would probably have you on if you were kind of on the fringes of the medical profession. But you, my impression is that you come from a, a fairly mainstream medical background. You didn't necessarily. You're not pushing. Um, I don't know herbology as, as as medicine. Oh right. You're not. You're uh-huh. a you're a mainstream physician. Mainstream educational background. You're not uh, doing. You know, in one room you're doing reiki, and, and in the next room you're prescribing right. antibiotics. Right. You're, you're coming from a mainstream yeah. perspective of 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 practical experience. It's so funny, right? Because in America, we do have to qualify ourselves. I mean, my name's Mohammed. I was born in Iran, and um, I lived in Germany for a while. So sometimes people are like, "Oh, you, you know, you finished medical school in your country? How was that?" No, I finished medical school here uh, in the states at UCLA, and then I did uh, UCLA for family medicine residency. So you kind of have to justify that right. to a lot of people, especially when you start saying, well, actually, you don't need to give your child antibiotics for this year infection <laughs> because it will clear. Oh, well, maybe in your country you guys did that. but uh, like, <laughs> So sometimes you have to justify it. But no, I don't practice uh, herbology out of the, you know, out of, out of the back office. And um, I actually don't know much about Western medicine. I do know that it works. I, I do know when to refer patients to maybe... 
uh, I don't know, acupuncturist, uh, rarely, but sometimes a good, a good chiropractor, um, that sort of stuff. But, uh, no, I definitely, I have a have good, strong conviction that Western medicine is great, but we are completely overusing it. We are completely, completely, uh, addicted to it. So the next category on our, uh, on our outline here is the risks of going to the doctor. Are there risks of going to the doctor? Oh, there are huge risks of going to the doctor. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I think, where do we start? I mean, you know, by just the fact that you know, so Josh, you're, you're coming into me and you are, you know, you have a, let's talk about a vague complaint. You have abdominal pain, you have back pain, you have a headache. The, the risk by coming to the doctor with those things is that I'm not thinking like, oh, well, it's probably just a migraine. You're good to go. I, I can't diagnose you with a migraine or a tension headache or a simple, simple headache based on just examining you, at least, at least not in our current medical system. A lot of these diagnoses that I give you are what we call diagnosis of exclusion, which means I ruled out an intracranial bleed. I ruled out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. I ruled out an aneurysm. I ruled out a tumor. I ruled out a, a vertebral artery dissection. I ruled out, oh, uh, you name it. So I rule all that out. Then I can say, uh, guess what, Josh, after the MRI, the CT scan, the blood test, the spinal tap, um, everything's fine. You just have a headache. Um, and you've probably experienced this, and I'm sure people who are listening to this are, have experienced this before. Definitely. There's a place – I'll tell you, me personally and, and, and my family, I, I'm, I'm on the suspicious side of, of I, want, I want good medical help of uh, when I need it. But I generally don't want it to be the first thing. Now, obviously, I'm in a car accident. My arm's hanging, severed, uh, you know, <laughs> holding by a strip of flesh. Get me to a, a surgeon and let's see if we right. can reattach this thing. Um, but it seems normal that our body is designed to heal itself. And uh, if you have vague symptoms or a little bit of uh, a little bit of pain, a little bit of discomfort. Uh, if there's nothing really striking, maybe just give it a little bit of time and see how it works because the other thing that I observe as a layperson not qualified in any way to give medical advice, I observe simply that if you have vague symptoms or a vague experience, it's not enough information for a physician to even be useful. You need something more specific, something that can actually be slightly categorized so that the physician can rule something out. Yeah, and it's it's funny because you're so good with words, so you can you can say this so nicely. I I unfortunately can't, but uh, now that you say it that way, it, it makes a lot of sense. And when somebody does come into my office with vague symptoms, it's so difficult because, and I think when you become a more seasoned physician, sometimes you can tease that out. Somebody comes in, you say, "Well, what, what's the reason you came in? What's your biggest fear? What are you worried about? Did you?" Somebody tell you something? Did you come across something? Well, Doc, honestly, my dad died of uh, you know an aneurysm, or I was online and I saw this article about how God, I don't know, something crawls into your brain and lays eggs, and I was worried about it. So then I can say, <laughs> okay, all right, I, I assure you, there's nothing that's laying an egg in your brain that I can rule out. Are you happy with that? And, you know, every once in a while they're like, oh, yeah, that's great, that's awesome, thanks, Doc. <laughs> but I think your grandma could could you know that's the thing like I feel like people have lost the um 
that independence, that autonomy um, of, of just saying, hey, I can own this. This is my body. Okay, I, got, I have a headache. I have an abdominal pain. What would I do for it? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Is it so severe that I can't do anything with it? Let me go to my grandma. Let me go to my aunt. Let me go to that old lady in my, uh, in my apartment complex. She, you know, she looks, I don't know, motherly. Uh, maybe I can ask her and see what she thinks. So I think that's really the first step and not going to the doctor, not dishing out 50 or $100 in the urgent care um, for it. I feel like there's a tendency in financial planning as a profession to try to always go to the extreme in order to protect yourself as a financial planner. Um, you know, uh, something simple, you know, I have a buddy of mine who's my age, he's an estate planner, estate planning attorney. And it's just funny to me because he, he's an estate planning attorney. And so for him, a simple will is not enough with simple instructions. It's, you've got to imagine every circumstance and scenario down the road. <laughs> like he's not willing just to say, yeah, just have a will and assign a guardian and let them figure it out if you have a simple, uh, simple affair. And I feel like the same um, tendency can be there in most professions. Is that the case in, in, in the world of, of medical practice, that, that the doctor has to be concerned with what's practical but also has to kind of go and, and protect against everything? We've got to rule out every possible outcome? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's, that's always my biggest fear. I, I, if I walk into the urgent care, I just don't want to miss something big. So I got to, you know, really, really, really go far out, like somebody comes in with a very simple complaint and I really got to rule out all the craziness that could be around it. Is it a vasculitis? Is it an autoimmune disease? Is this some odd disease, some odd infection that we haven't encountered? Is this histoplasmosis? Uh, is this malaria? You know, in America, we don't see any malaria, so it's so easy to miss malaria in this country. But the most common things are common. Uh, if someone comes in with a headache, it's probably a tension headache. It's probably a migraine. It's probably from them clenching their teeth and, you know, referred jaw pain. Um, but it, like you said, probably somebody who's really good can, can, be, can make those diagnoses. But with the way the system is, with the way the culture is, the lawsuits, the patient complaints, all these other things, you, you have to go to that next step. What are the influences that affect your mentality as a doctor in today's world? I'd say it's what's expected of me, I think, from what's expected of me. I'm, I feel like I'm expected to be infallible. I'm expected to make no mistakes and to not get anything wrong. But I, I'm given a limited set of resources and I'm giving – I'm being given a fallible uh, income. So, yeah, I mean, if you paid me $10 million an hour and let me run any kind of test and everything possible, sure, maybe I wouldn't make any mistakes. But I think that's what is driving me is this, this very unrealistic expectation um, to cure and not miss anything while in reality it's, it's really it should be 99% in the patient's hands, and it's not. So how do you deal with that? I mean, you, you get pulled in all directions. You've got um, you know, the, the, the primary uh, goal, which is to care for the health and, and safety and well-being and comfort of your patient. That's primary. 
but you're also faced with the fact that this person could turn around and sue you. You've got the threat of litigation if you miss something. You've got the practical realities of your of your practice, running a business. You've got the the professional realities of wanting to um, be acknowledged as an expert in your field. How do you deal with these various conflicts of interest? Well, I think you know what's important in medicine is you have to practice in within the scope of your practice. So I'm an urgent care physician. I'm not a surgeon. So I will do what I was taught in in a, in in Western medicine. But at the same time, I am looking for an, for a way out. Not not trying to escape medicine, but I'm also recognizing that the majority of the patients that I'm seeing and the majority of the patients that I'm unfortunately making a lot of money off of, I don't need to see. They don't need to be there. By me being there, I'm sort of enabling them. So I am doing the next step. I am saying, okay, I got to become financially independent. I have to not rely on these, on this income and I have to do something else with it. Like you, right? I mean, you not, not saying that you left your profession, but you're taking it to a whole different level. You're you know, taking that veil off of it and saying, this is real, this is the reality of personal finance this is the reality of economy. And let me give you all the knowledge and have you make your decision. Same here. I want to, I want to be the consultant. Um, I used to be really big into cars and one of my great, great, uh, buddies, a uh, mechanic, he's just brilliant. And when you take a car into him, he's just giving you his opinion. He's not emotionally vested in it. He's not trying to lead you in this direction. He's not trying to upsell you. He's just telling you, this is my professional opinion about your car. And he's usually right, but then he'll just walk away. And it's sort of funny. That's, that's what I want to do. Like, Come to me for medical advice, but take your medical, uh, just take your health in your own hands and just own that. Yeah, and the parallel I would draw from finance that I'm hearing you say is in the world of finance, when you need insurance advice on life insurance, um, you need a life insurance agent. You don't need an article on the internet. You need a life insurance agent who's practiced and experienced. When you need uh, portfolio advice because you're trying to figure out how do I structure my uh, portfolio and can I stress test it such that it's going to sustain me for a 30-plus year retirement, uh, I think that's a really good place for a financial advisor. The problem comes when what somebody actually needs is a budgeting system and then they're sitting in the office of an insurance agent and the insurance agent is taking time to try to fix their budgeting system and then try to convince them to buy insurance. And so the actual diagnosis of the condition – you know what's the appropriate insurance uh, product? What are the appropriate insurance products? That conversation gets minimized because the other things are – to the maximum. And I feel like the same thing applies in the world of, of medicine and what you're sharing is if I come to you and I have a specific clear symptoms and if you're a specialist, you can spend very valuable time diagnosing something that's significant. But if you've got to weed through all this other stuff that should be common knowledge, that should be uh, addressed first, then your effectiveness is diminished. So let's talk about the most common, uh, I would say, misconceptions, the most common medical misconceptions, the things that you see people all the time that they don't need to be spending money on. What is the first What is the first thing that you see people coming all the time and you say, you should not be spending money sitting here in my office asking me about this? Oh, gosh. I'd say things like back pain uh, and upper respiratory infections. Upper respiratory. So what do we mean by that when we say upper respiratory? So pretty much any kind of sinus, ear, nose, eye, throat, lung, 
chest, throat, I mean, did I say throat already? Ear, whatever. Any kind of infection that you catch from other people, any kind of, any of this cough and cold stuff, I see, so this is cold and flu season for us right now, right? I probably, and I do phone visits too, we do this televisit stuff, but um, I probably say 85, 85 to 90% of my visits right now are all for colds. Colds, colds that, you know, we would never, I can't do anything for. I can't treat a cold. I can, I can recommend over-the-counter medicine. I can prescribe you a stronger cough medicine. But I'm seeing like 30-some patients just for colds in one day. Can you imagine? So, why, so why do they, what do they expect you to do? Why do they come in to see you? I don't know. It's, 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 I, I don't, you know, maybe, so this is the weird thing. I, I think I was raised in a different culture. I, I didn't, was, I wasn't raised, but I was about 10 um, when, I, when I lived in Iran. And so that, in that culture, you don't take your kids in for cold. So maybe there is a bit of disconnect there. But um, I think maybe in, in the Western culture, you go in for a cold because you just want it to be better, faster. And that's really what I get from the patient. Like, hey, doc, I'm kind of tired of it. It's been seven days. It's been 10 days. I really, I can't, I, you know, I need to stop coughing. I have meetings. I have phone appointments. Uh, my clients are getting annoyed that I'm coughing. They're worried that I'm passing something on to them. You know, or sometimes they're, you know, they're just miserable. They're like, doc, I can't sleep at night, you know, or my ear hurts so much. It's really becoming frustrating. I don't want to take all these over-the-counter meds. Can you just give me some antibiotics? so I can get better. And that's really where the crux of it is, is I want antibiotics. Do you, do you think that's primarily like a, almost a placebo that I'm going to feel better because I've been prescribed a pill and this magic pill is going to make me better? Well, the pill is, is not coincidentally magic. I mean, uh, antibiotics like azithromycin, erythromycin, doxycycline, these were intentionally designed to decrease inflammation they're fed to farm animals to decrease inflammation they they um, just make you feel better when you take them even if you're not having an infection even though you know people know all the side effects they want them because they've taken them before and they are getting better and they're, they've probably grown up taking antibiotics when they've gotten sick <clears throat> So it's, it's, it's intentional. I'm, I'm very convinced that medications these days are engineered, built, designed to, you know, make you feel good in some sort of way so that you do want them. I guess I'm just testing my, my, my own perspective to see it, just to find out if I'm wrong or right, because I don't want to be foolish or foolhardy. Uh, it's especially as a parent, uh, you know, I feel the weight of my children being sick much more heavily even than, than, than myself uh, because of that sense of responsibility. So I don't want to be foolhardy, but I was raised, uh, <laughs> my mom was a farm girl uh, and, and I guess a, just kind of a more practical uh, approach that if you're sick, you get in bed for a couple of days and and generally, I, I, I eschew the use of medicine unless it's very much needed because I figure every medicine has potential benefits and it also has potential side effects. I mean, the, uh, yeah. if I get diarrhea when I'm traveling, I don't want to use Imodium unless I'm going to fly and I'm going to be on a plane because I don't want to. I don't want my system disrupted. I figure my body is trying to get rid of something and it's trying to fix itself, so I should just give it some time and let it work. Stay hydrated and and give it some time to let it work because I don't want to be dealing with the the side effects of of of, of everything. So uh, I, I'm looking to see if um, 
uh, what, if, what I hear you saying is that that practical perspective is, is valuable. What other things do you see people for all the time that you, you would say are just common misconceptions? Yeah, so I think in Western medicine uh, specifically, people, people feel the need to take vitamins. They think supplements and vitamins are helping their cause, and it's not. Uh, vitamins have a ton of side effects. Vitamin C vit- and calcium can increase your risk of kidney stones, can re- increase your risk of heart disease later on in life. So th- vitamins, uh, I don't know. I hope you're not taking them, but I, I just do don't you, recommend them. Do you say that as a blanket statement, uh, meaning just no vitamins or a, pract- you know, a multivitamin uh, a day uh, might be useful? How hardcore I are don't- you? I'm pretty hardcore. Uh, I mean, right. even in Europe, it's pretty uh, it's pretty good, pretty common knowledge for for physicians to say that vitamins are not good for you, and they actually are detrimental to your health. And when you research it, they they really are. They they don't offer any benefit, and they actually have some independent studies have shown that they increase your independent mortality. So they're not good for you. Hmm. I'd have to, that, that's one I haven't researched, um, uh, but it's it's an interesting topic to me. What next? Um, oh my! Oh, this one's a good one. Uh, cholesterol screening and blood sugar screening. So, people uh, people think that they have to go to the doctor to regularly get their blood test done, get their cholesterol done, get their blood sugar done, get their blood pressure checked. We definitely overdo it. Um, I think I think there, there's a there's a need for that in somebody who's high risk or has a very unhealthy lifestyle. Sure, you can get a good sense of where you're at, but. Blood tests are not that accurate, and I think that's what a lot of people miss. Uh, you can get somebody who is, you know, six foot tall and three hundred fifty pounds coming in, but their blood test, everything might be perfect. Their blood pressure might be perfect. Does that mean everything's okay? No, it doesn't. It does not at all. So that's another big misconception. That's that's been personally my my medical history. I've always been uh, overweight. But I've always had perfect, um, you know, anytime there's lab tests or blood tests, uh, all the, the ranges for cholesterol and blood sugars and things like that uh, come back as perfect, uh, you know, as, as within the normal ranges. And it's, uh, it can be, uh, well, it can be misread, probably misread. It, on the one hand, it, it allows me a, a sense of security of, oh, I, yeah, I'm overweight, but at least I have perfect uh, blood numbers. Therefore, everything's fine. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's my personal experience. <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's understandable, right? People, people just want to have some sort of a sense of where they're at. And if they see a bad cholesterol number, they at least, then at least they would kick it up into the next, next, you know, they, they would say, okay, that's it. I got to really get my stuff together. But I feel like we lull patients into a false sense of security by telling them, um, this blood test shows everything's fine. So you're good. But who designed the blood test? What does this blood test really measure? Is it really looking at the lining of the vessels? And it's not, you know, and it's like in a good economy, if you got a crappy, uh, bunch of tech stocks in a good economy, you're always going to be fine. But when it's really tested is when the economy crashes and everything else crashes with it. Same, same here. If your body really gets sick one day, if you contract, God forbid, some sort of a crazy illness, a cancer, something, and your health is not that good, I don't care what those numbers read, you're not going to recover that well from that illness. But if you're healthy overall, and you do get really sick, you're probably going to be okay. And I'll touch up I'll touch on that in a little bit, but you know, people can get cancers and heart attacks and strokes and be just fine if they're healthy. You know, so that's that's another big one. Mammograms and PSA tests. Right. So 
we overdo mammograms, that there's been plenty of studies for that. Not only do we overdo mammograms, which means, by the way, a mammogram is a low-dose X-ray that we apply to breast tissue, and men can get mammograms as well, um, and we look for cancers. We look for real subtle abnormalities. And the problem is we're radiating so many young women's breasts. We're radiating um, people who, are, who possibly are a bit at risk for cancers. And by radiating them, we're increasing the risk of cancers. Um, and then when we do find something, we over biopsy them, we over treat them. Benign cancers that probably would be fine, we're going crazy with it. PSA tests. So we do a uh, uh, prostate-specific antigen, which is a blood test that checks whether you might have prostate cancer. A lot of people want them. They come in, they ask for them. Unfortunately, a lot of times these are abnormal for other reasons. For example, your prostate's a bit inflamed from an infection or from just being larger due to age. <clears throat> uh, and then PSA is abnormal. Great. Let's do a biopsy. Uh, biopsy didn't show it. Let's go in with a camera. So you just, it, it's just a big spiral. Your infections. Ear infections in children, there's a lot of great studies and a lot of good pediatricians will not treat ear infections in children anymore unless uh, for very specific reasons. If the child's very young or if they're recurrent and the child has decreased hearing. But other than that, ear infections, probably viral. Even if bacterial, will go away on their own. So my, like our thought, we want to be very careful with you know a very young baby. Uh, we try to be extra uh, cautious uh, with a very young baby, uh, as far as anything like that. But with a similar advice to a cold, apply. Just give it, give it a little bit of time. Watch the child for if a little bit of discomfort, uh, a little bit of, of sickness that's not necessarily cause for alarm. Give it some time and watch for acute symptoms. Watch for uh, something that's really worrying. Is that a is that a reasonable approach? Yeah. So I, I like this question because. This is a great money saver and stress saver for parents. So you, you have a little one, I don't care, three months, a year, two years, and he or she comes down with a cold, coughing, congested, can't breathe out of the nose, is, has a croupy cough, has a barking cough, a little bit of wheezing, fevers, but the child's eating, the child's pooping, the child's peeing, there's no weird coloration. Um, sure, the kid might have a little bit of a hard time getting through the night. And if you really want to, you can do a bit of Tylenol or ibuprofen for the fevers or the pains. But if the child is doing well, they're able to hydrate. And that's really the biggest key with children is if they can hydrate, if they're having wet diapers, you're probably okay. If they can keep something down, even if they're retching and vomiting, nausea, you know, they don't want to eat, their throat's really sore. If they, they can get through this very, very well, as long as they're staying hydrated, as long as they can take in some calories. It doesn't have to be solids. It can be Gatorade. It can be Pedialyte. As long as they can keep those things down, yes, watch it, wait it out, because you bring them to the doctor's office and those lungs sound terrible, I got to get a chest x-ray. If that ear looks horrible, probably going to have to recommend antibiotics. So on the next uh, four four bullet points on our outline here of our preparation for today's show. These are pretty wacky. And so I'm going to give yeah. you a chance to talk about this. And then I'm going to push back on how these things actually save money. But I'm going to read because I think this is a funny setup. So <laughs> under the heading of common medical misconceptions, you have indicated, number one, you need a doctor, you need a doctor to control your pain. Alcohol is bad for you. Coffee is bad for you. Cigarettes kill, and you'll die if you don't eat. So you, you got a little bit of a case to make because these are uh, are unusual. How do you mean that these are misconceptions? So misconceptions is um, 
you know, if you even look at a cigarette, you're going to die. No, not true. Plenty of good studies out there show that if you're you're smoking one or two cigarettes a day, your risk of cancer, your risk of heart disease is minimal. I'm not saying smoke. I don't smoke. And I'm I'm not telling anybody that you should go pick it up. But, you know, uh, let's face it. We have this big campaign against tobacco. But it's also a big financial campaign. Tobacco is not as bad as it's made as it's 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 this huge villain. Like right. it's it's insane. It's right. insane, and it's not true. You know, I've only uh, ever met one person who actually does that. I'm, I'm sure more people do, but I had one friend um, who was a financial planner, and she had one cigarette every single <laughs> night. And so every night after dinner, she would go out on her balcony and she would smoke one cigarette. And uh, I never knew anybody else who uh, could keep that uh, that point of of non addiction, non uh, over usage, other than her. But <laughs> there would be a, a perfect case study of what you're. You're talking about right and i think one other thing to consider is when you're driving in traffic and you're you know butt to butt to another car you know the amount of chemicals you're getting in your system is way 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 more than a pack of cigarettes that you could get because you're getting it every single day you're also sedentary you're sitting down you're stressed when you're sitting down and when you're stressed and your body is getting these nauseous chemicals in the system there's a big difference and when you're all relaxed, chilling, listening to some Joshua Sheets podcast and <laughs> smoking a cigarette—it's it, it, very different. You know, so. I have a theory on cigarettes, and you could—I've never talked about this publicly. This is just one of my little pet theories. But I think that sometimes smokers uh, who occasionally—I don't know what the number is on this, because obviously there's pretty damning evidence on the on the level of carcinogens to at a point, and I, and it, I don't think you're disagreeing with that. But um, sometimes I wonder if, if smokers' happiness isn't simply due to the fact that they take breaks and they breathe. And those two things combined can make a big difference on your stress levels. Now, I have zero medical qualifications to um, opine on this subject, so take it for what it's worth. But when I read studies and just talking about the impact of stress – and how the the chemicals, uh, the whether it's uh, the levels of acidity or just the chemicals that your body creates when responding to acute stress, uh, I see how just simply the virtue of slowing down, taking a break, and kind of what smokers will do out on the smoker's corner is sit down and, and breathe and talk. Now, of course, they're breathe. You could do that without the the smoke going into your lungs. <laughs> but my right. theory is that that sometimes they smokers have a more uh, positive lifestyle simply because of taking the time to have a break and to breathe. Yes. And if I, Josh, honestly, if I could prescribe one cigarette a day to somebody versus Xanax or Ativan or Prozac, I would do so. But I still need my medical license for a little bit. So <laughs> I'll hold off on that. So keep going on these other, on All these right. other. So another one, you need a doctor to control your pain. Pain is such a big one in America too, right? Because People are busy, they got stressful lives, and they just can't be bogged down with pain, and pain takes over their world. But I think people are more afraid of pain because they think it indicates something really bad, and that's never, never the case. No, well, I should say, that's almost never the case. When your body hurts, it's okay. The pain is probably going to go away, or there's something you're doing wrong. And you don't need a doctor for that. If you have a bad knee, some exercises, some maybe some weight loss, some strengthening, and it, the pain's probably going to go away. You don't need a surgeon to go in there and say, oh, you have a meniscus tear, we're going to clean this up. So in my case, I have a, a small tear in my medial meniscus, and I got a, a labral tear in my right shoulder, and I still do everything that, you know, I'm pretty active, I'm fit and everything. You don't need a doctor for that. You just don't. And it hurts, yes, it hurts every once in a while. It's not a big deal. 
once you get used to that kind of pain, once you accept it and say, hey, this is my body, it's going to be all right. It's not depressing. I don't have a bad lifestyle. It's just something I notice. So I think just putting it into perspective, it's, it's really, really important. It's okay to live with pain. It's not a big deal. Our, our pets do it all the time and they're the happiest things on the planet. Here, here's my way of thinking about it. Feel free to correct it. Um, but my thought, I like the, the kind of the, um, I guess the, the the more natural approach. And with regard to pain, this makes sense to me. Pain is my body's way of saying, I have a problem. I need a little bit of time to rest and recuperate. So treat me gently. So if you know if there's some mild knee pain or mild shoulder pain, I need to be careful and not put excess weight. It's the body's way of protecting that so that it can mend and heal itself. It's not something to immediately freak out about. It's something to observe and to notice and to perhaps give a little bit of excess re- extra rest um, to that body part. It's not something that I should cover up. Uh, it's not something that I should try to to numb with with medicine. Um, just it's something that I should pay attention to. Now, again, right. my caveat, of course, there it may be an acute pain, and that's a symptom of something significantly wrong. But is that a reasonable way of thinking about it? Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And I know, I know some of your – you know, some of your listeners might have some serious chronic pain issues. And so, of course, they're crucifying me and hopefully they're not crucifying you. But um, there are certain conditions. There are certain things that are so bad. There are certain types of pains that are so tough to deal with. And I'm, again, I'm not saying you don't need a doctor at all, right? But we're talking about the most common pains that we have. And they are exactly that. They're signals. Something, your body's saying, something's off. Can you please just give me a break? And you do that and it works. So I agree. You'll die if you don't eat. All right. This is a good one. So you die, you, you'll die if you don't eat. Patients come in. They say, Doc, I've been having nausea. I've been having vomiting, diarrhea for the past seven days. I haven't eaten anything for three days. Okay. That's fine. You're not going to die. You don't, need it. you don't need to eat. That, you, you won't die if you don't eat. You're not going to become more unhealthy if you don't eat. You can drink water. You can, you can drink your calories. You can do Gatorade. You can do Pedialyte. But people fast. People fast uh, for days on end. People, uh, people actually there, – there are some studies that show that individuals who fast a few hours a day or fast for a few days in a row have certain – um, better health conditions. I'm, I'm not a fan of that. I, don't, I never think it's good to do some sort of an extreme to your body, but there's nothing wrong with not eating. And if you if that's part of your sudden weight loss plan, that's fine too, as long as you realize that you're probably going to crash pretty good afterwards. Coffee and alcohol? Right. So I drink coffee regularly, and I'm, I think I heard you take a sip of yours. So <clears throat> <laughs> Indeed. Coffee is not bad for you. There's great studies that show that it can decrease your risk of colon cancer, certain other types of cancers. It stains your teeth, sure. It can give you more acid, but probably most of your acid is coming from stress. Alcohol, right. If you if you have an addiction, it's very different. I don't know if you drink or have drank, but if you if me or another one of my friends drinks alcohol, we're we're not going to get addicted to it. We just don't have the genes. We don't have the predisposition. But a little bit of alcohol does not cause cancer. A little bit of alcohol does not destroy your liver. So I think also recognizing that, that you know, these little insults to your body mean nothing in the big scheme of things. You can, you can deal with quite a lot and come out just fine. But it matters whether you're stressed, whether your body is just depleted of energy, because then it can't cope with it. And here's a good one. I'll, I'll last one, I don't want to, I, I know I keep talking a lot about this scientific stuff, but there's been a lot of great studies that show people have a higher risk of melanoma 
if they've been drinking a lot of alcohol and been under the sun for extended periods of time. So that combination together has a much higher effect of you having melanoma than just having either sun exposure or alcohol. Interesting. What's the... So what 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 is that? Uh, so, you, so you make that statement, I, and obviously I understand, but I don't understand the meaning of that. Is the idea don't drink when you go in the sun, or is the idea <laughs> right. that stressed out people are the ones who are just slamming them down while they're sitting in the sun, and that's ultimately what's leading to the melanoma? So kind of in, in between that, it means that if your body's under stress because you're overworked, you're not sleeping enough, you're fighting with your spouse – and you're, you're just your body is so depleted of energy that it cannot even maintain the, the simple act of treating little tiny cancers, treating a little bit of DNA damage that happens every single second in your body. If you're in that condition, you put a little bit of alcohol in your system, then sure, it can damage your body. If you put uh, you go drive behind a big semi truck and you inhale all those carcinogens, sure, then you have a higher risk of cancer. But, we, but if your body is really not under that much stress and your body can do a lot of self, uh, self-regulation self and self-healing, you could probably work in some pretty dirty industries with a ton of carcinogens and you would be just fine. And I think that's a really, really important thing to take into consideration. I read a book one time, uh, you mentioned the acidity of stress, and I, I guess I read a book one time talking about the acid-alkaline balance of, uh, of, your, of your body, and, how, and the major premise was of, of the book was, uh, I believe it was called The pH Miracle, if memory is right, uh, but the major premise of the book was that it's the acidity of your body that causes, um, that causes your body to become uh, sick, uh, it's, and that you can, if you focus on acidity, you can generate better health. And so the primary cause of acidity was um, self-created uh, hormones and, and, and chemicals in the body, primarily due to stress. That was one of the author's um, conjectures. And then also many other factors, coffee being acidic, meat being acidic, um, sugar being acidic, etc. I haven't seen that theory. I read that book on it, and it seemed um, – I mean, it seemed to make sense to me as a layperson, but I haven't seen that theory spread more widely. I haven't seen that receive a lot of popular attention. Do you know anything about that? Is that accurate? Is that known in the medical circles? Has that been corroborated or disproven in some way? It's it's just that the way we do scientific research, I don't think it's been ever proven. You know, that's just not the way. That's just not the way things are tested in medicine. Things are tested on animals based on whatever outcome you get. If the animal didn't have a horrible outcome, you test it on humans and then you just go for it. But if you look at other cultures, so some cultures believe in hot and cold versus um, acidic and basic. So it's just one of those things that's been around a lot of cultures for a long time. And yes, if you talk to uh, people who are a little bit more uh, holistic based, they absolutely believe in that. And um, my patients, even the patients that I have who lead their life that way, I feel like they're much healthier by just controlling their acid base. And they can call it whatever they want. This food creates more heat. This food creates more cold. This food creates more acidity. This one more basicity. So, I know where I've experienced it though is with, is with stress. So I have observed um, if I get a there are a few emotions that when they get to me I feel them physically. Um, the uh, and the big three are when I get a sense of overwhelm uh, and this happens to me from time to time. I generally put so many things on my to do list and then I start to get overwhelmed. That leads to just this tension and I've noticed it. it I don't want to be too uh, dramatic, but it almost just forces my brain to shut down. And I've learned that I have to proactively manage that. I'm not good at 
at I'm not great at it. I'm getting better at it, but just proactively managing that sense of overwhelm. I have to shut everything off, and I have to focus on on just some simple quiet reading. Um, just I have to build time into my schedule where I ignore the world because it seems like I have so many things running at me. I got I got inboxes filling up in eight different applications. I've got all these things coming in. Everyone's upset at me. Everyone's blah, blah, blah. And so I tend to get overwhelmed. Uh, another one is in that, that I feel the physical effect of that emotion. And so I know there's a, there's a physiological connection. Another one is fear. Um, and then, um, which I don't experience a lot of that, but I know that sense of unease. If I start to get it, I feel it. And then the big one for me is, um, criticism. I feel that like in my stomach when I feel like I've, my, one of my major um, character weaknesses is I'm a people pleaser and I like to please people. And so when someone is displeased, it causes me, I feel it in my stomach, Muhammad. Like I actually get viscerally sick um, when that, and I have to just turn it off. I usually have to ignore it for a little while, let some time pass and then, and then relate. But I'm, I am convinced that those emotions and just call them stresses, those stresses have a physiological effect on me that I can feel. Not that I know I'm going to get sick in 10 years, but I can feel them now in the pit of my stomach. And so I'm convinced that a lifestyle of that type of stress built up over time has a physiological effect. It, it has a physiologic effect and a long-term damaging an effect, damaging effect because people put themselves under these stressful situations for so long and they don't have good coping mechanism, good coping skills. You do. I mean, just listening, I feel like listening to your podcast, you, you seem to do such a good job of taking criticism and, you know, uh, brushing it off or it might just be show, but I doubt it. Usually people succeed when they have good coping mechanisms. And I think if you can develop that, if if a person can develop good, good coping mechanisms, then you can do fine. And even though you do get a bit of damage in your body, you can recover as well. And I think that's important too. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, no, I don't brush it off. I've just learned how to, because I know it's going to affect me. I've learned how to put some distance between it and then and right. I've grown in that a lot. It's a, it's a new skill that I've I've learned over the last few years. Uh, and so I've learned, listen, I'm not going to allow this to uh, affect me. And usually for me it's just time. Just give it a few hours sure, and sure. then you quiet your emotions, you quiet your heart. Um, for me, I, I pray, uh, I quiet my emotions, I quiet my heart, and then I can go back and I can start again. But with a quiet spirit, then I can go ahead and face things and I can look to pull the good out of it and disregard uh, those things that are not helpful. So talk about uh, – we've talked about some of these things as basically ways of saving money. Uh, and so the general consensus that I pull from what you've shared so far is – Slow down just a little bit. Be a little bit more – have a little more what used to be common sense. Uh, don't rush to the doctor for everything and just slow down a little bit and, and let your body simply work. And that is a uh, kind of a defensive approach to, to cause you to not always be uh, forcing uh, – putting money out the door. But what are some of the things that we can do proactively um, here you know, under lifestyle and genetics? What are the things we can do proactively to invest in our health so that we don't wind up even – so we have fewer symptoms, so we get sick less? So you know, your body doesn't come with a manual. So a little bit of it is you just having to develop that sense of being in tune with your body. And I think a lot of people are not doing that. It's, it's recognizing like, – like we've already talked about, when my body's under stress, what is it that I got to do to de-stress it? Is it I got to take some things off my plate? Maybe I got to cross some some things off my to-do list? Is it better for me to spend these next three hours tell my loved ones, hey guys, I'm sorry, I got to step away for a little bit. I just got to clean all these things off of my stress list. 
And once you do that, you just feel great. And that alone might create a better sleep the next night. It might decrease your need to need to, to, need to eat or binge on unhealthy food. So I think that lifestyle, that, that sense about your body is really important to develop. And yeah, there is no good way of telling you how to do it. But if you just try, you'll get it right. You'll eventually figure it out. Um, so definitely stress right? Decreasing stress, increasing your sleep. A lot of us, I think you're, you're in your twenties or I don't know, you're, you're young. 30. Uh, 30. Okay. 30. So you, we probably still need eight to 10 hours of sleep. And some of us say, no, 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 no. I do great on five. Yes, you do. Absolutely. Many people function much better. They're more alert because their body is so much much more stressed that they actually do better with tasks and getting things done when they only sleep four to five hours. But that doesn't mean that that's what you need. And of course, diet. Diet's a big one. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a bit if we have, if we have, still have time. So weight loss, right? So weight's right. a big one. Controlling controlling your weight and controlling how controlling how much activity you have. And somewhere in the bottom of this document that me and you're looking at, I've mentioned you can weigh a lot more if you're very active. You can weigh a lot more if you're eating healthy food. So weight is becoming less and less of an issue. Um, in medicine and science, we're finding out that it's not, it's not as important what you weigh. It's more important probably what you're putting in your body and how active you are. And, and, and again, in this culture, it's all about running and marathons and oh, crazy stuff. You don't need to do that. You can walk. You can bicycle. You can just getting up from your desk and going somewhere and going for a quick walk while you're doing a phone conversation, while you're reading something, even like walking on those stationary treadmills, that is great activity. It doesn't need to be this elaborate gym membership with this exercise, a bit of cardio, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It doesn't need to be that. I'm convinced some of that stuff is is really damaging, and it's it's I I, try, I was about to say I keep that opinion quiet, and here I am broadcasting it on a podcast. But it's a little hard from a non athlete perspective to uh, be taken seriously when you're criticizing uh, other people, you know, other people, but uh, who are very active. But I have a friend of mine who is was just a committed triath- uh, triathlete, Ironman, and he was just so committed to it, and I love and admired his character and his dedication and his discipline. But when I look at the effect on his body, his body just seemed to be breaking down, and right. he had all these damages from from overuse, uh, knee knee issues, and whatnot, which significantly impacted his life. And it seems to me that just a, a more reasonable perspective um, is a healthier approach, uh, not, not the extreme being so extreme. Now, that type of person, it seems to be connected to their character where they just have an extreme personality and that's where they find their outlet. Uh, and I have, again, I have no place to criticize someone who goes out and does that, but it doesn't seem to me to be the most helpful, healthy thing. And, you know, from a, from a very, I'd say as objective as possible as a physician, I see both sides. I see the person who's just destroying their body with way too much exercise, lowering their immune system to the point of catching pneumonias and meningitis. And I see the other person who's so busy and involved in, you know, building a business, running their business, dealing with situations that they're so sedentary that they, they themselves are destroying their life. So some, somewhere in the middle, and it doesn't have to be perfect. That's the thing. Our bodies are amazing with that. You, you don't have to be perfect. You just got to do a little bit more. You just got to, you know, decrease the time you spend around the kitchen table a little bit, or at least take the food away, bring in some 
bring in some tea, bring in some vegetables, bring in some fruits, and then go for a walk together. Just increasing your activity every single day in little, little steps makes a humongous difference. And I think that's such an easy thing to implement. Talk to me about some strategies of actually navigating the medical system. Uh, and uh, so, I actually, so pretend I actually have some problems, I have some issues, and I need okay. the input of a physician. Now, what are some proactive strategies that I can implement to control the financial cost of that while getting the, the medical help that I need while controlling the, the financial outlay? So a few things. Um, a lot of insurances now. Um, I'm a big. I'm a big advocate for HMOs. I'm not a. I don't like PPOs, and I know there's a lot of different types of insurances out there. But HMOs are nice because they everything's under one roof, and for the most part, you do save money. People are worried that they're not going to get good physician, but I think you can always spot a good physician, and you can certainly change physicians to find that. But back to your point, I think. When you get a symptom, when you get something, look it up. Don't be afraid to go online. Look things up. But uh, recognize that there's a lot of sensationalism out there on the Internet. If, there, if you have a headache and you're worried about something, take a look. If you have a rash, go online. Look at some rashes. Describe the rash and look at pictures on Google. When you see that, you kind of get a good sense. Most, almost all good health insurances now, you can email your doctor for free. You can do video visits or telephone visits for free. So I do telephone visits uh, once a week or so. I talk to about 50 patients in 10 hours, and it's all free. Uh, Our medical group does not charge for it, and I love it, and patients love it. I can chat with them online. I can see their face. They can send me pictures of their rash, of their kid's rash. They they send me pictures of their poop and their vomit. Fine. No big deal. I'm happy to look at it. Um, <laughs> and it's great because I can say, no, look, this is, that's, that's all that is. Don't worry. It's probably just this. It's probably just that. So that's a really good way of cutting your costs, just running it by someone. See if that doctor's eyes like bulge out. If they bulge out, yeah, yeah you probably are dealing with something a little bit more problematic. But if not, then don't worry about it. And I think this is a good one. Find a doctor friend. Find a even a good nurse friend, um, you know, this social capitalism thing that, you know, social capital, not capitalism, social capital thing that you talk about is huge. Find a friend that's a doctor or become friends with a doctor and run it, run something by them. No, I'm not going to give you a diagnosis on the fly. Of course not. I don't want to get sued by you later, but I'll gladly tell you that, nope, that doesn't look concerning. I'll just wait it out. So mm-hmm. th- that's another big one. Um, imaging surgeries. Those are my two big, big, big pet peeves. We do so many MRIs and CTs and x-rays. And yes, we're picking up a ton more diagnoses. The fact that we have more cancers now is probably just because we're diagnosing them more. Um, So we do them, but they're not necessary. Um, This ties into breast cancer and uh, prostate cancer in older patients. They, They can be left completely untreated and that patient will probably not have any issues with it. They will die gracefully at, at an old age before they die from those cancers. And that's how a lot of really good surgeons are managing cancers these days. They're saying, sir, you're 75 years old and you're in great health. That prostate won't even bother you. Yep, you got cancer in it. Don't worry about it. Leave it alone. So that and the last one is specialists. So if you go to a specialist, if you go to a cardiologist, if you go to an orthopedic surgeon, and I'm not I'm not. I don't want to get killed by one of your uh, subscribers here. Who is a who is a specialist? There's nothing wrong with going to a specialist. But when you have the option to go straight to a specialist, well, the my my orthopedic surgery 
friends, they're trained to fix you surgically. They're less inclined to tell you, well, this is what I would do. I would go lose 30 pounds and I would do these exercises and you should be fine. No, they're like, dude, I can take you in the OR tonight at 6 p.m. and I can shave that stuff off of your meniscus and you'll be great. You're going to walk perfectly. Right. But when you get that surgery, unfortunately, later on in life, you're going to get arthritis. There is no knee surgery that I've ever heard of that you can get done. No intervention into your knee that's not going to cause you arthritis down the road. So is it worth it? I don't think so. Um, so same with cardiologists who may say that, yeah, you probably need a treadmill stress test because we've got to make sure this is not coming from your heart. Oh, it is a little bit abnormal. Let's go ahead and go into your groin and go into your heart and see what's going on. And oh, sorry, when we did that, we also knocked off this little plaque that went into your brain and you got a stroke. But your heart was good. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. And Mohammed, what you're focusing on here is is my biggest I was going to say beef, but my biggest, I guess, frustration is it seems to me that if I go to a, uh, uh, you know, like I said, if I go to a surgeon, there's a higher likelihood that the surgeon is going to diagnose surgery to improve my ailment. If I go to a uh, physician who is primarily uh, dispensing medicine, there's probably going to be a, di- a, a, a prescription that I go out with. Uh, at, as the initial stage of treating my ailment, if I go to a uh, I don't know a holistic, <laughs> natural natural health uh, doctor, there's probably going to be some system of vitamins and 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 natural foods and whatnot that are going to be uh, my primary basis of treating it. And it leaves me as an interested layperson trying to be uh, careful on both sides, trying to be prudent but also cautious. It leaves me often in a place of of, of not knowing who to trust or how to trust anybody. Uh, and it leaves me, uh, I guess, not knowing who to trust and how. Right. Any suggestions and, for that, dealing with that? And, and Josh, this is, I feel like this is how we lay people, lay, the layperson feels when it comes to, uh, you know, a financial advisor, uh, uh, somebody who can give us financial advice because we go to somebody. I've, um, I've, I've, you know, I've talked about this before, but um, I've, I've had about three other financial advisors at first who were really just in, more keen on selling me something. And I'm not saying they were bad; they probably weren't bad, but they just kept wanting to sell me on stuff, and they didn't sell me on good stuff. You know, I've made my mistakes in the past, but I learned from that. I learned, and I made mistakes, and I researched it, and I listened to good podcasts. I went on good websites, and now I have a awesome financial advisor who is great, who is who gives me very objective information, he awesome. gives me options. And he's like, hey, dude, it's your money, man. You got you to gotta decide. But these are the things that I know and these are the things that I'm good at and this is what I recommend. But you should do what you do. And so I think it's the same for you for you guys out there. It's when you go to your doctor, first get the sense. Is this person just burnt out, just wants to get out of the room and is going to throw an antibiotic at you? Or is this somebody who really cares and going to give you a lot of options? Now, if you put that physician in a bad situation, yeah, they're going to just say, you know what? Sorry, man. Here's Go go see the surgeon, dude, because you're just being a big pain in the ass and you're not, you're not trying to you're – not, you're not working with me and I'm mm-hmm. having a hard time with you and I got 30 other patients to see. And recognize that if you go to an orthopedic surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon makes money doing surgery. Right. I mean – we're human. You sure. know, if I can make, you know, $750,000 doing a few knee replacements versus make $350,000 just doing a bunch of crappy office visits, I'm sorry. 
I would do the knee surgeries. I would do the knee replacements because the patients want them. They're begging for them. They're fighting for them. How are you? It's really tough as a surgeon to say, no, ma'am, you don't need it. No, of course not because you got $300,000 tied to it. You're going to do it. Right. Same conflict of interest in the financial advisor space. Uh, you know, people don't – and I would imagine at least what I have observed – is you get a little bit callous over time, no matter how much you care in the beginning. When you tell people, so let's say that somebody comes out and they become an orthopedic surgeon and they know that weight loss and walking is the primary thing that they should prescribe. They prescribe weight loss and walking you know, again and again and again and again and people come back again and again and again and don't take their advice. And so finally, fine, I'll do the surgery because you, right. you get a little jaded. I think the same thing happens in the financial advisory business where no matter how many times you prescribe budgeting and saving, your, your client come back again and again and again and they have more credit card debt or they don't have any savings and they're not doing any budgeting and so finally you say okay fine i'll just sell you products and let's you know at least you'll have something and you start to justify it and um right wrong I, it's tough every every profession has those challenges and, and i think as as patients or as people humans whatever um you, this is what we can do right for ourselves is let's let's think ahead what's what's the most expensive thing in people's lives later down and later on down the road. It's it's probably either divorce or medical expenses. So the divorce, I, I can't tell you what to do there, but medical expenses, start eating right, start being active. You don't Again, you don't have to go crazy exercising. Just start eating a little better. Avoid those really rich foods. The foods that are probably the worst for you are, is anything that's processed, most anim, anything animal-based is probably bad for you. Anything that's dense is bad for you. So pasta, bread, it's probably not good for you. You can have a little bit, sure, but only if the majority of what you're eating is really healthy. Do you need organic, not organic? That is such a tiny, tiny factor that I would say once you get eight to 10 hours of sleep, once your stress is minimal, and once you have some activity, sure, then you can worry about organic, not organic. But the, the conversation around that is just silly right now. Um, so lose lose some weight lose 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 enough weight that you feel good <clears throat> and you can sense it in your body when you have a little bit less weight around your neck you're breathing better you're not you're sleeping better at night because your your you know your pharynx isn't collapsing on itself and making you get sleep apnea your belly doesn't feel as much pressure so then when you're sitting you don't feel so much pressure against your heart you're so you know get a sense of that in your body and I think these are the things that if you start doing now, if you build a little bit of muscle mass, if you build a little bit of elasticity in your tendons and your joints, fine, no big deal. Your knee gives out later on in life. It's, it's okay. It's still going to go for a long time and you can probably avoid a lot of surgeries. Two final things and then uh, final words. Uh, one, on the topic of losing weight, what do you – do you recommend to people a certain way of doing that, a certain particular style of diet? Do you take a general approach? How do you advise people to consider uh, that? I, I mean, I usually sit down and I ask them, what is it that they're already doing? And then I tell them, uh, you know, diversify in it, right? That's, that's what you would tell your clients probably is just try a bunch of different things. Not only be more active and get more sleep, but also change your diet to a little bit less meat to a little bit less bread and rice. And that alone is going to make you drop a lot of weight. Um, so I usually tell them to just start doing the diet more than the exercise because no matter how much you run, I mean, you can run on a treadmill for an hour running from the police, you know, you're not going to, you're going to get maybe 200, 300 calories out of that. <clears throat> but 
diet. That's that's huge. You can lose, you can get a lot more, uh, more bang for your buck just focusing on your diet. So that's my big one. I say, do your diet, be active. Um, and with diet, I usually just ask them what what they eat, and I identify like two or three things that are bad for them, and I'm like, that's it. You're done with that. You know, if you're gonna have it, you're gonna have it once a week in a very small amount. That way, you're not withdrawing from it. But um, that's my big one, and that's what that's what I think has worked for my patients that have followed through. With regard to sleep, uh, I've seen people advocate uh, just simply <laughs> the sleep diet. <laughs> I don't remember the name of the book. I didn't read it. I just read the, uh, the, the re- some reviews of it. But the whole point was if you just start sleeping more, <laughs> you'll probably result in a, 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 de- a, a, a lost weight. I know for me, this has been a big one where I've learned I, I've, I've wanted so – I want to be productive. I want to be. I want to have a high degree of output. But I've learned that I I can't get by on six hours of sleep. I need more, and so I have to be really, really diligent about getting to bed on time. And I want so much to produce things, but I I just get run down, and I, I get run down. I get my brain stops to stops functioning. I lose my creativity and my sense of sharpness. And then over time, give it a few days. If I if I if I give it a few days, then uh, I get physically sick uh, if I if I don't sleep. And so, um, I've told my wife. I said, "Honey, don't ever let me stay up late uh, because I'll get excited about a project and I'll say, oh, just this once.' And then I go ahead and push through, and then I regret it. So we've got a deal. Like I'm never allowed to stay up late. Uh, but just t- a couple more brief comments on the value. Well, of sleep. I'll say I'll say one last thing about about sleep, and it's great the fact that you relating that personal experience from it it's, it makes so much sense right uh, restful sleep is so much more important than how many hours you get so making sure that right before you go to bed you don't want to be dealing with something really complex it's just not possible you need a wind down time and a wind up time right when you get home do your go crazy do your work do whatever you have to do and right before sleep really wind down start having positive thoughts and just especially especially when you're dealing with a big problem that you really need to solve the best thing you can do is just completely forget about it don't let those intrusive thoughts in sleep on it and your mind can do so much more with it than you can than you could ever do and when you have good restful sleep without that stressful state you'll do so much better even six hours will go will go a lot longer than eight hours of crappy sleep so just that that's my part on sleep final words of advice final words of advice um use your doctor as a consultant not your crutch stop going to the doctors for most things really start taking care of your body start start investing in your body and i think you'll get a lot more you feel more independent and when you do go to the doctor get as much information as you can online everywhere people are worried that us doctors hate when you come in with articles from medscape no bring it dude i'm not shoot i love i love looking at it and say oh i didn't even think about that but no you definitely don't have chagas disease you're fine (laughs) so and yeah exercise (laughs) diet sleep of course that's it that's all i got Mohammed, I, I thank you for coming on. You are building a website at urgentcarecareer.com. So you're sharing a little bit more about your own personal experience. Uh, so if people want to check that out, urgentcarecareer.com. Are you optimistic about the future of medicine as a professional career? I think so. I'm seeing a lot more people being drawn to uh, 
more holistic type of medicine. I feel like we're making medicine, we're making disease less of an enemy. So I do, I do, I do, I feel very positive about it, actually. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radical Personal Finance. If you're interested in building financial freedom for yourself and your family, please subscribe to the podcast with our free mobile app so you don't miss a single episode. Just search the app store on your mobile device for Radical Personal Finance and download our free app, which also contains an archive of every past episode of the show. If you have received value and financial benefit from the content of today's show, please consider becoming a supporting patron. Radical Personal Finance is listener-supported, and it's your direct financial support which enables me to bring you this content. In addition to your voluntarily paying for the content you've just heard, as a supporting patron, you will receive a number of member-only benefits, including a private Facebook group, access to our weekly Q&A calls, and discounts on future products and services. Details can be found at RadicalPersonalFinance.com patron. Again, RadicalPersonalFinance.com patron.